0: Welcome to Telegeography Explains the Internet. I'm your host, Greg Bryan, and this is the show that explores the business behind all of the ways humans stay connected around the world. My guest today is going to be Dr. Peter Wood, who is our colleague at Telegeography and focuses on Latin America as well as satellite service around the telecom world. Today we're going to focus on that latter one um, uh, with a comprehensive review of the telecom satellite market and how it's currently developing. So Peter and I talk about different orbits and how that uh, classifies each type of satellite and then what they're used for. We talk about some current and future use cases for satellite service. We talk about the economics of where satellites might be competitive or not so competitive. Uh, We talk about the role of regulators in the satellite market and much, much more. And we hit some really good uh, geography topics since Peter and I both are geographers uh, as a background. And it's a great review of this newly interesting market uh, that's kind of emerging as uh, important once again in the telecom ecosystem. Before we get to my interview with Peter, though, I first want to have on for just a few minutes my colleague, Alan Malden, who's going to go over a recent blog post that he just published that focuses on current events in Europe and the possibility of intentional disruption of Internet service uh, on the continent. So welcome, Alan. Hi, Greg. It's going to be back on the, on the show finally. Yes, well, um, today we're, we're just here for a quick intro before we talk to uh, Peter, our colleague, about satellites. But um, you published a really interesting blog post last week uh, that was reacting to the, the Nord Stream gas pipeline. So it just was addressing people's thoughts out there about the possibility that saboteurs or, or some kind of malicious actors could potentially cut Europe off from the Internet. So could you just give us a quick rundown of what you talked about in that blog post?
1: Yeah, sure. So I wrote this blog because I kept reading uh, various articles, um, you know, in the aftermath of the the Nord Stream damage about how Europe could be potentially, you know, cut off from the rest of the world. So you know, I'm in no position to comment on the risk of uh, sabotage to cables. But what I, what I did want to do was to lay out some facts about how Europe connects to the rest of the world and some insight onto, um, you know, the various submarine cables, the the, the terrestrial paths. And of course, I want yeah. to frame this with some telegeography data as well.
0: Okay, so the upshot of the, of the blog post is that basically cutting off Europe, which is very well connected to the rest of the world, would be a major undertaking. Um, so in, in terms of bandwidth, which region is is Europe most connected to?
1: Yeah, I think that's, that's a really important point here is that there are, there are many different subsea cable paths that link Europe to the rest of the world. Um, so in the Atlantic, for example, there are 17 uh, different cables right now that link Europe mm-hmm. to the US and Canada. And looking at also which, which regions connect most heavily to Europe in terms of the bandwidth, it's the Atlantic. Um, our right. data shows that about 75% of Europe's uh, bandwidth to other regions goes across the Atlantic. And it's far yeah, less so to uh, there's, Middle there's East tons Asia,
0: and those cables all land in physically uh, uh, separate geographic locations for the most Absolutely. part as well, right?
2: So, yeah. Yes.
0: Yeah. All right. So you know the the episode that we're queuing up here is is really all about satellites, um, with with our our colleague uh, Peter Wood. Um, and you know, in your opinion, is is it possible for satellites to play a role in diminishing the risk of countries? getting disconnected by, by malicious actors or natural disasters is is there anything they can do to help there?
1: Yeah, I think this is a key point I wanted to make in the, in the blog was for people to understand that that you know cables are the the dominant way that data is sent right around the world and between Europe and the rest of the world especially and You know, if in this scenario, if Europe were to be cut off from subsea cables, you know, satellites would allow for some level of data to be sent between Europe and the rest of the world, but they would fail dramatically as a complete, um, you know, substitute for for, for cables. So, yes, emergency service would keep things going, but if you don't have cables, there's, you know, hundreds and hundreds of terabits being sent that would not be able to be sent. Um, mm-hmm. via, via satellites. So we might
0: be able to keep some lights on, but it would be far from business as usual, basically. It seems that way. Yeah. Excellent. All right. Well, that's a great way to cue uh, us up. First, everybody can go to Com to check that out, or they should be following you on LinkedIn um, where we're posting that sort of thing as well. Um, and now on to my interview with Peter Wood. Thanks, Greg. Thanks, Alan. Okay, welcome to the podcast, Peter. Thanks for joining us. Glad to be here. All right, so... Um... First, why don't you just give a really quick background on yourself, because you haven't been on the podcast before. So um, uh, wh- how long have you been at Telegeography, and what brought you here?
2: Yeah, so I'm Peter Wood. I've been at Telegeography for a little bit over two years. I started, I think I'm their first pandemic child. So It's I got, true. I, I, yeah. I, I didn't meet you in
0: person until you, we had been working together for like a year and a half. I, I didn't think, meet so. anyone in person except yeah.
2: for one person randomly on the street yeah. <laughs> for the first <laughs> year I was with Telegeography. Yeah. So it's, yeah, I started right about the beginning of whatever this is, and now we're here.
0: Yeah, excellent. All right. Um, I thought we're going to talk all about the satellite industry just across the board, but I thought it's useful to start with some basic definitions because even though this is a telecom, internet-oriented podcast, uh, satellites haven't been the forefront, which is something we're kind of going to get to. Um, so just um, give us a definition of, of what the different satellite types are and and what that uh, landscape looks like. I guess I should say skyscape looks like. Right? So, yeah, yeah. So,
2: I mean, I think the main types of satellite satellites, we see them categorized, is based on two typical categories. One is how far away from the Earth the satellite is. Mm-hmm. So what's its orbit? which Part of it isn't just distance, but it's mostly distance with its LEO, which is LEO, low Earth orbit, Mm -hmm. MEO, which is middle Earth orbit, or GEO, which is kind of geostationary. There's a couple of categorizations to that, but is it far away or is it relatively close? Mm -hmm. Relatively close is still pretty far away. The very low Earth orbiting ones are still significantly higher than like commercial airliners that go on international flights. So it's still Mm -hmm. far away, but in the grand scheme of things, uh, there's kind of scale to that. And then there's another type that is actually kind of like it goes diagonally-ish around the world, but mm. that doesn't that's a really small amount of satellites. And mostly that we're talking about for the most part the other three. So that's one category, how far away a satellite is from Earth. Right. Which is important in telecom world, which is how far does it, data have to go and how right. slow latency. does it go? Yeah. Exactly. Mm-hmm. But Also, just what is the type of data being sent? So is it broadcast for live events that are Mm -hmm. happening? Is it something that's happening for military kind of espionage or whatever, (laughs) or just observational things? Some of it's research-based. Telecom is one issue or one area. And even within telecoms, we see there's different types. So is it something that is related more towards mobile backhaul? Is it something that's related more towards just... kind of what submarine cables do so there's a lot of different roles in that sphere as well
0: and does it make a difference so i assume that certain uh of types of the orbits leo mio and geo are used for different telecom type applications right so another like like we're gonna get to this but like leo is what what all the internet access is is from but if you're doing say broadcast television is that a different uh orbit level usually like
2: Yeah, for the most part, I mean, I don't remember exact proportions, but Mm -hmm. there's different uh, kind of tendencies to go towards one or the other. I mean, the LEO is pretty new. Mm -hmm. There haven't been many satellites that were low Earth orbit until the last four or five years, really. Mm -hmm. I don't know the exact numbers, but the numbers have gone up by the thousands. So something that was zero is now the dominant orbit. And before that, so everything was pretty much geostationary, far away from Earth in that very high altitude. So at that point, there wasn't that much difference, just because everything was basically lumped into the same orbit. And
0: and to be clear, when we when we say geostationary, it's always pointing to the same location on Earth, like a landing station. Where that's not the case for Leo's, right? That's
2: a good point. So that's one difference. And there's different ways that the different satellites are and they're the way that they're engineered to just kind of mm-hmm. do their thing. Right. Uh, the geosynchronous are the ones that are always going to be in the exact same position of the earth, mm-hmm. which is good in some ways, but it also has drawbacks on the flip side. Leo is there's different configurations so that they're communicating with each other kind of mm-hmm. laterally right. while they're not staying above the same fixed spot, but typically staying within a kind of confined regions. Mm-hmm. But that's an iffy area because there's different ways to do it. Right.
0: So, The reason that we're here on Telegeography Explains the Internet talking about satellites is is a funny one in a way, because for many, many years, I've been in this business for a long time and we've had to explain to people the layperson, even sometimes someone who is not even a layperson in some respects that satellites don't do very much in global telecoms, right? So for a long time, it has been our task to explain, uh, you know, when you're at cocktail parties explaining what you do that, oh, no, you know, your your mobile call or your internet uh, is actually mostly traveling across wires, including wires that are laid on the floor of the oceans connecting the continents and all that now we're finding ourselves talking about satellites again. I mean, we did cover satellites at telegeography long, long, long ago. We haven't really done much with them in recent years until um, we got you to sort of be the principal investigator on this. Why did we do that? (laughs) Yeah. I mean, it's
2: one of those things where like you want to look, there's the difference between the magnitude of how much stuff is happening in an area and then the degree to which change is happening. Mm -hmm. So still even to this day very much expect right. submarine cables 99 point and something just, just fiber as in general mm-hmm. whether it's domestic on on terrestrial or something that's going under the ocean the internet's going to be on there connectivity is predominantly going to be going through cables but the degree to which sell, satellites are becoming important is going up because there's quite a lot of investment going into the technology for making it satellites that are efficient at communicating with each other mm-hmm. and also to ground stations on the earth and the, the the clients that are really interested in this, partially because there's a lot of subsidies going on, mm-hmm. <laughs> and partially mm-hmm. because there's a lot of private investment that's going into it. Right. But all that together, there's a lot of opportunity for, for example, uh, your kind of end users, which would be like your kind of retail clients that are at home that want to access the general rural, internet, the global Residential internet. kind of. Uh, so, folks, there, yeah. so there's a lot of a lot of people that, especially because of this pandemic, the pressures I think have mounted to where. A lot of people want and probably need to be online more right. often. And a lot of people don't live in areas where that's either feasible or mm-hmm. affordable. Yeah, so, I, I can't
0: tell you how many times, uh, w- whether it's in talks I'm giving at, at conferences with new hires at telegeography, with people, you know, sort of trying to get their minds around the 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 internet in general that you explain that that last mile problem from an economic standpoint is intractable in some cases. So there's just no affordable way to reach some people with wires because you have to dig big holes. Right. And then those holes are sometimes, you know, subject to other people digging them or running into the poles that they're, you know, hanging on or storms or whatever. So like wireline access to certain geographies is just always going to be prohibitively expensive this might solve that problem. And and, and is that where they're headed with some Leo service basically?
2: I mean, of course, even the people that are doing this work, they, I think pretty regularly admit, they don't know where things are headed. There's a chance, I mean, there've been multiple iterations of satellite companies that have failed Mm -hmm. and sometimes it's their fault. Sometimes it's market pressures. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of factors involved, but there's a lot of pressure, like I said, for more people to be able to access the internet more reliably and more affordably so hopefully that's something that will be happening, you know, in an equitable way. It seems mm-hmm. that it's possible. Uh, even like I said before, uh, if we're to lump all of the people that would be connecting to some of these services, like your Starlinks, et cetera, right. uh, compared to the global internet, it's a very small fragment of mm-hmm. the people that would be using it. But the people who would have the difference between satellite access in some of these cases and nothing at all, that's an incredibly large difference. It might seem trivial to the outside, kind of like your densely populated metro areas, et cetera. But in those scenarios, as well as not just rural areas, but also like islands and other things like maritime, uh, people that are flying on airplanes, places where it's physically impossible to connect to wires. Mm -hmm. That can be really important. And then also kind of related to that, there's a lot of pressure to connect enterprises in ways that, Mm -hmm. for the same reason, is affordable, that allows dynamism in where you are locating different operations within your company.
0: Or or more to the point, enterprises, very often the network team is subject to a real estate team that doesn't think about network whatsoever,
2: right? So So it depends on the company. Of course, every company does things differently Mm -hmm. and have different focuses, but there's a lot of opportunity at the least to alleviate some of those pressures so satellite's not going to be fixing a problem it will at least be offering an option so Mm -hmm. that the problems become less grave
0: right absolutely so it strikes me that there's a reason that that we got here with satellite of it being such a kind of minor sort of a particular application for some industries like you mentioned airline and cruise ships and whatnot to um, being something that is potentially available for a wide range of internet alternatives, and that is vertical integration. So when, when people hear about uh, Starlink, I think they often uh, have slash SpaceX there, right? So could you talk about how vertical integration maybe played a role in getting us to where we are now with uh, with satellite service at, in terms of its potential, maybe if we're not there yet?
2: You know? Yeah, I mean, one of, the, one of the most prohibitive costs for connecting people or in companies via satellites is getting rocket ships off of the ground. It's very expensive. <laughs> it's yeah. very expensive. To Gravity have all... is really strong. You know, <laughs> a lot of fuel you need. Yeah, you a lot of, I mean, it's yeah. just a lot of costs that go into Dino getting juice. stuff from here <laughs> up to here. It yeah. just takes a bunch of stuff mm-hmm. and that stuff costs money. But we see that at least in a couple of instances, SpaceX being one example, potentially blue origin, which is related to uh, project Kuiper, which, Kuiper is, right. which is Amazon. Mm-hmm. Not a coincidence that the kind of, at least statistically, most promising projects, statistically in terms of the number of satellites that could end up being in orbit, right. that would be connected to the global internet, or with companies that have the potential to launch their own rockets.
0: We, we definitely live in, in like the cyberspace novel of my youth, where there's like competing billionaires who are privatizing
2: space. <laughs> right. so, it definitely yeah. adds an interesting <laughs> aspect to <of> things. Yeah. <laughs> but I mean, at the, at the base level, we see that it, it's very hard to do the thing which we're talking about, and that is getting satellites into space and keeping them there. And then also in the case of low Earth orbit, an important detail is compared to the satellites that are much farther away from Earth, you need a lot more just Mm -hmm. because of the geometry of what you're doing. You can only see so much of the surface of the Earth if you're very close to it. So you Mm -hmm. need to have a larger fleet or Mm -hmm. a larger constellation. And also because those are smaller satellites, the physical size is much smaller, which is good lighter burden in terms of weight for the rockets you can right. take more up companies like spacex mm-hmm. take advantage of that by doing rideshare and charging others companies to put right. their rock or sh- uh, on the rocket they can you know, tag along with satellites but the lifespan of those satellites is significantly shorter at least with so current technology keep sending rockets all the time so you have to have more rockets and the frequency with which you have to replenish those rockets goes up so mm-hmm. a lot of rockets being sent out i mean if you live in cape canaveral you're aware of this (laughs) yeah you know
0: what Uh, my family and i were driving the other night uh home from dinner uh, over over the the blue ridge mountain range there uh and um saw spacex going Mm -hmm. across i think this would have been i don't know mid-september you know it happened in dc a
2: lot of people noticed a few weeks ago they saw something yeah that was that was yeah i was i was in
0: you know northern virginia so yeah um, and it was. I at first we were like, What is that? and then we looked it up, and there was a SpaceX launch that night. So, very likely it, that's yeah.
2: going to be more and more common, mm-hmm. especially yeah. we have
0: Wallops Island here in Virginia. So, some of them come out of there. So, mm-hmm. although this was from Cape Canaveral, and you could still see it here in Northern Virginia, it's fascinating. Um, what about Elyria? So, I saw this just a couple of weeks ago in the news. Um, it's an alphabet. Google kind of spin off, and I truly didn't understand what the news story was about. But it seemed like they have some technology that they're spinning out of uh, of Alphabet that might also have satellite implications. Um, uh, what can you tell us about that?
2: Yeah, so and that's a big aspect with to make satellite connectivity something that can thrive, which mm. is having. Technology that's really effective and efficient, but also right. can be affordable. So right. Google for years had a thing called Project Loon, mm-hmm. which was sort of this humanitarian-ish related project at connecting areas that have traditionally been very underconnected right. or unconnected. Mm-hmm. Their approach was, I don't think it was in any of the orbits I mentioned, because it was actually very close to Earth with weather balloons. Ah, okay. And so is,
0: is that, I mean, st- technically that's still a satellite, but, uh, you know, in, in our atmosphere more than we're thinking of space, so right, And so. the
2: capacity for those was significantly lower, but it's mm-hmm. just one of those things where you know, the difference between zero and something is very large yeah. to who has right. it. right. But I think for multiple reasons, the economics became very difficult and mm-hmm. Google decided to shut down the project, I believe, about a year and a half, two years ago.
0: Mm-hmm. And but they had some technology left over that had cross applications. They had
2: technology and they also had personnel who had done quite a bit mm-hmm. of research mm-hmm. and quite a bit of training in the area. Right. So it looks as though they decided to spin that off into something that's instead of being kind of not-for-profit, non-profit related, mm-hmm. uh, something that is more gauged towards a for-profit area. I don't think that they're aiming to be a connectivity provider, but I do think that they're aiming to kind of inform and provide the technologies right. to companies who will do that. Mm-hmm. And a lot of that, I believe, is related to things like laser connectivity and these different ways of really just being efficiently transmitting data between satellites and then also from the satellites to the Earth. Because you know, to connect all this data, you need all these different parts. Right. And when it goes into space, uh, it's fast in the sense that you know you have nothing impeding the progress ideally mm-hmm. <laughs> compared to when you're going on cables you can have a cable break right but you also you know, the speed of light is a factor you need to mm-hmm. take into consideration so i think the we'll weather that. right so and also weather you, on earth can can break submarine exactly. cables
0: hurricanes and whatnot but it
2: can also impede the the lasers from getting mm-hmm. yeah so. that's a really important point yeah. which is i think kind of what their focus is that they've purportedly found ways to go through clouds <laughs> mm-hmm. right <laughs> which has right. often been the hardest thing which is the scatter from the beams that you're projecting when there's storms they're hard to predict where they'll be Mm -hmm. and you can't really do much about it right so although i've also
0: heard tell on on the ground some of the receiving stations for like starlink for example uh, if they get covered in snow then they're not usable and they so they put heaters in them but then uh cats and other animals (laughs) find them. it makes for very adorable photos (laughs) uh the telecom side of
2: things it creates some very unique uh, challenges but Um. i I Think that Open a ticket trouble cars, ticket yeah. for a, a
0: nest on my satellite yeah. receiver.
2: Right? So. I just got to put little receivers on their collars yeah. and they can be exactly. part of the system as
0: well. Yeah, so before we move on to our next topic, there's one thing I want to circle back on that you brought up, that these satellites are smaller. So a lot of us, like, you know, you're watching movies, spy movies, and you see the satellite in the, in the and there's the big, you know, uh, solar panel arms and all that. When you say these Leos uh, for the likes of Kuiper or Starlink are smaller, how
2: small are we talking? I mean, like, like the size of a table like this. I okay. mean, it varies. There's mm-hmm. some satellites that you can fit in the palm of your hand. Sure. Those yeah. aren't really the ones that have the capacity to do mm-hmm. what we're talking mm-hmm. about. But, but I mean, like
0: so, a communications LEO satellite might be your kitchen table. Basically.
2: Yeah. So there's a system in place, which they measure by units so that, mm-hmm. that there's a really efficient way to measure. Because especially if you're selling the extra space on your rocket. Right. To be able to have it, you have to have to, to the fraction of an inch. You have to make sure that everything's in line just because of the laws of physics mm-hmm. <laughs> you mm-hmm. want to make sure that you count for all of your those your laws of physics are pesky um, and no bench right? exactly <laughs> yeah. so, so, you, so there's the kind of they have a, i forget the exact parameters but we're talking a, a, ma- a matter of feet to meters depending on how many satellites and uh, where they're going but that's compared to the really large ones which we we we're approximating the sizes mm-hmm. room things right. like that where right. it's very large mm-hmm. they live for decades right but because they're so far away they have different pros and cons mm-hmm. to their function mm-hmm.
0: yeah those are the ones that that you know i remember from watching IMAXs and whatnot that would come out of the the bay of the the shuttle or whatever on the the canada arm you know but that's we're we're, we're mostly not talking about that kind of scale right? they're
2: very so, heavy they're yeah. very large projects to mm-hmm. you know no pun intended to, to yeah. develop so i think that's why there's so much energy mm-hmm. going into leo which is which is also another kind of I mentioned energy, mm-hmm. they also get equipped with things like solar panels. So right. like there's all of these different elements that are combined into to making it work. And the size is something that really can open up some opportunities for what's possible.
0: Mm-hmm. All right. So let's move on to some kind of real world use cases. So I, I, I sort of want to make sure that I didn't downplay too much that satellite has been small but an important part of the existing telecom infrastructure out there so let's go through first kind of like what is the current active use case for for the last decade or so for satellites and then and then we'll talk more about where it's going in the future
2: for the most part, I think satellite is referred to as kind of connectivity or last resort. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, perhaps with the exception of military investment, that's not so much. It's probably first resort in some cases, right, just because right. of the autonomy that's allowed. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But for the most part, when we talk about data being sent via satellite in some capacity, it's because you're far away from metro areas that have better connectivity, or you're just in an area where there just aren't cables landing, or you're in an or area you're moving, where, so wires don't exactly, work, or you're on a <laughs> so, boat. Yeah. Or you're on a place that is fixed, but is relatively temporary, like an Mm -hmm. oil rig Mm -hmm. or a mining location. I mean, energy is a big sector where that comes, Mm -hmm. as well as, like you said, maritime aviation. So, yeah, if you're hard to get wires connected to and to keep connected for a long period of time, or it's very expensive, which is usually related to that. That's typically who was buying services from satellite providers, right. and so a lot of those are still continuing to do so. But we see that there has been disruption in that market, mm-hmm. so mm-hmm. it's not necessarily changing. That last resort still a rest resort, and it'll probably right. still be what defines satellite connectivity. But mm-hmm. the dynamics of who's doing that and how seem to be what's changing.
0: Yeah, that's a good point. So, so going back to when we were talking about you know the the economics of of uh, local access in rural, hard to get to areas, whatever. It, it strikes me, it's extremely unlikely that LEOs are going to ever be competitive if you're in a multi-tenant office building in a major metropolitan area anywhere in the world, right? Because there's just so many wires already in the ground or whatever. But but there's a lot of of human activity that, that occurs outside of multi-tenant office buildings all around the world, right? So, yeah, exactly.
2: Yeah. So, I mean, it's the, the question of numbers I and mean, the capacity of a satellite just is nothing compared to this capacity of a cable or even just... The fiber is mm-hmm. bunch you're building. So, mm-hmm. as far as like a unit per unit cost analysis, right, it's pretty clear what makes the most sense in most cases. Yeah, but like, yeah. That, like that's on a on a fiber pair, most yeah. people
0: listening to the show certainly understand this already. But just in case you don't, it's when you you know just just a few strands of fiber, and when you're doing terrestrial service, you put in tons of fiber because it's just easy enough to do that. Can have just terabits and terabits of potential. Uh, throughput, and that's that's not at all the case with satellite
2: service. Right? Yes. Yeah. So, I mean, it's not exactly the same comparison because mm-hmm. we're talking about light as opposed to you know, units of energy. But right. like, I think right. that that makes sense to me is like charging a cell phone. Mm-hmm. At least to now, for what I can tell, sticking in the core that's plugged into the wall, a lot faster charge than right. some of the wireless ones. Mm-hmm. They mm-hmm. can be convenient, and when right. you use them, they're often really cool. Right. But I mean, as far as technology, mm-hmm. and also this related to just the physical limitations of how stuff is transmitted. Right. Uh, right. The different roles. So when we talk about this, often folks are
0: thinking, "Oh, is uh, you know, um, is satellite going to end up being competitive with something like the submarine cable market?" or the terrestrial uh, backbone market? And the, I, it seems like the answer to that is a resounding no. That's hard to see,
2: right? I'd say that the answer, I mean, the framing that I've heard a lot as well is that the real question is, are, is there going to be competition? Because it's probably no, but mm-hmm. to what degree are these companies and sectors going to be complementing one another? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Because there's a lot of overlap, right. but there's also important gaps. Like one that we've been hearing more recently, I mean, very recently, which is the mobile backhaul and how Mm -hmm. that relates to satellite Mm -hmm. and how we have these different sectors, which probably should have been working together for a long time. Right. But even things as just as simple as terms of the jargon that they use and Mm -hmm. just the the ways that they conceptualize what they're dealing with in terms of advancing tech uh, connectivity, Mm -hmm. Uh, there needs to probably be more communication (laughs) between people, but also communication in terms of like network network cohesion.
0: I I want to, I want to put a little pin in that because I think it's a really important issue so that, that with 5G, so everyone's hearing about 5G, a lot of um, sort of, you know, l- lay people even with, with a mobile phone have noticed that they have 5G service available now if they have a newer phone. Um, as, a, as a business technology, 5G is, is potentially more often going to be used as a fixed wireless service, meaning a, a permanent sort of wireless connection uh, between a, a remote kind of site and, and a 5G tower the thing about 5g is that it doesn't have very good penetration through buildings and and mountains and stuff like that not that that 4g penetrates mountains but um but it it has a, a much smaller uh sort of um radius of of workability than do older technologies like 3 and 4g which is to say you need a lot of 5g towers so if we're mm-hmm. talking about 5g service and the things that 5g uh, as a technology will change for those who are trying to get onto the internet and to the you know global telecoms uh, kind of network, then you have to still lay fiber to all of those towers in order to have. And so there's a huge project of not just building the towers, but then also laying fiber to them. So do you see satellite as potentially playing a, 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 an interesting role in that, in that you may not have to, Lay fiber. So if, if the goal of 5G is to have somewhat like ubiquitous internet for things like autonomous vehicles, I know that's the the use case that irks some people because it's just so obvious. But you know, it's it's an easy one to envision. You're driving down a road, there's not a whole lot around, and you need your car to be in constant communication with, with the the rest of the internet. Um, uh, it, it, are we envisioning satellite as uh, as potentially providing some backhaul for things like five G uh,
2: towers? Yeah, I mean, I think there's a lot of growth that's going on. A lot of conversations, probably literally this moment, mm-hmm. talking about five G backhaul and just like I said, how the companies that are operating and even launching and developing the technologies for satellites can work more hand in hand with the companies that are advancing mm-hmm. 5g just because, for the reasons you stated exactly there's these gaps and this kind of the coverage networks and i don't think that satellites will do something to replace towers but like i said complementary mm-hmm. is really the question here yeah so you're so
0: to make it clear to everybody like what what's physically happening is that your device whatever it is an iot device your car your mobile device connects to that tower, and normally that traffic would then immediately go on to a wireline connection that goes to a a data center somewhere. But this could play a role where we don't need to have laid wire to all of those towers and they then get to a LEO landing station that connects you to the data center or the landing stations. I I presume we're on top of data
2: centers Mm -hmm. all the time, right? So... Yeah. yeah. And I think it's interesting too. I mean, a lot of it comes down to where there's just a lot of need for engineers to do very good work. Because mm-hmm. uh, you know if we're having a system where presumably you have satellites that are sometimes giving you access to the global internet or you have or whatever connectivity you need and switching off between wherever you are, if you're driving a car, you know, you're going through different places and mm-hmm. what's connecting you will change frequently. So you need those machines to talk to each other. Right. So that's an engineering strategy or feat that needs to be accomplished, but also like related to that, There's a lot of questions of security as well, Mm just because if we're going to be having more systems of communication that have satellites, or rather we have signals going through the air that can be potentially intercepted, mm -hmm. uh, there needs to be strategies to keep that as well, uh, mitigate as much as possible.
0: Yeah, sure. It strikes me that deep packet inspection, for example, might be easier to pull off than it is to say... Drop a device onto a submarine cable on the bottom of the ocean floor somewhere without getting noticed or whatever. So yeah, certainly, I want to talk a little bit about uh, the physical geography of this too, which is to say we're we're both geographers. Many of us at telegeography, surprise, are are have a geography background. Um, of course, a lot of what we think about a telegeography is is the physical geography of the Earth, how that works with with the the wireline infrastructure. If we have a network of LEOS that you can the world is kind of truly flat in the sense, right? Like in the in the, the the promise of the internet has been people, oh, the world is flat. It's not, right? The the prices for everything uh, a wireline vary radically depending sometimes on things like physical geography, economic geography, right? Satellites really are just. There's a line of sight up in space and there's no geography involved in a way
2: right so- sort of I mean I think that's the thing that has kind of caught a lot of us off guard which is particularly when it comes to like geopolitical conflicts lately mm-hmm. we've seen I think both in the cases of Ukraine which is you know explicitly you know a war. And Iran, which is kind of this social uprising that's happening, Uh, just basically any place where uh, the government in place or whoever's controlling the Internet or the regulations there says they're cutting it off or implicitly cut it off. We've seen people like Elon Musk say, well, I literally will tweet launching, getting activating the system. Which is nice, but it probably leans closer to, you know, PR strategy than it does to actually activating something because the two is you need to not only have satellites that are ready to communicate, Mm -hmm. you need to have something that is communicating with. Mm -hmm. For example, if you have a place like Iran or even a place that's literally going through warfare, it's very hard to send the packages, literally boxes that you need that will be communicating. Uh, So you need to keep that in mind as Mm -hmm. well. So Mm -hmm. in that sense, geography is just as important as ever. Which is the exact same or very close to the same issue you see with cables, which is, okay, we have a lot of cables available and we have companies investing in it, but if we can't have the permission and ability to land a cable in a country and get it to connect to other stuff... The idea of the world being flat is a little bit futile because right. there are still human barriers that we get put up, sometimes, no. sometimes literally.
0: Yeah, I mean, that, that, that's a great, that's a really great point and, and brings up something that I wanted to hit, which is that um, it's long been a, a pet issue of mine of, of spectrum policy. First of all, spectrum, of course, has to be uh, by nature kind of governed on a state by state basis um, because it is it is the space above uh, that, that that particular country, and and for the most part, spectrum is is governed by the, the telecom regulator within that country. And it, it strikes me that it's a, it, this is a perfect application of one of my sort of pet issues here that in in the in the U.S. Uh, and in most countries around the world um, are a lot of our best spectrum well. the the Department of Defense gets the very best spectrum, right? So, and when I say best spectrum, maybe we should explain a little bit that there are different, um, let's, let's, so let's back up. When, what does it mean to say best spectrum? Is there, there's quality of spectrum? Uh, What what does that mean?
2: I mean, I guess it depends what you're looking to do as well. Mm -hmm. So, you know, on the Like this, we were to just kind of show here the the spectrum of all of the information you can send and the ways that beams of light and sound are sent. Mm -hmm. Uh, I mean, there's different areas where it's just good real estate. So there's there's like there's there's ocean front
0: or downtown condo spectrum, and there's you know sort of sticks or you know uh, wrong side of the track spectrum.
2: I mean, it's where you don't have the issue, kind of like with packets, like you don't want to have too much traffic, so Mm -hmm. you want it. So there's something that it's good, just like the physical limitations of what you're sending can. quickly, efficiently, but also it's not going to run into other stuff and be hard to interpret right. on the receiving end. Mm-hmm. So, but that's a really good point, which is mm-hmm. that, you know, countries deal with that, which I think is where there's a huge area and probably need for just international standards to be something that is, right. you know, more and more, I definitely look forward to talking to more regulators about that mm-hmm. issue specifically.
0: So it's another way of saying that the, 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 certainly the satellites uh still don't make the world flat in that what spectrum you can use isn't necessarily always exactly the same although i take it there there are certain bands that that leo is operating on around the world uh, what, are, what are those bands? I, I forget off the top of my k- head. KU and KA k- are the big mm-hmm. ones.
2: I mean, there's also a lot of... I mean, every satellite is different. So a lot of satellites will operate in multiple bands. Sometimes they'll use one band to connect or to k- communicate with other satellites. Mm-hmm. Sometimes another band to communicate with different satellites in different orbits and right. then also to communicate back to the Earth. Interesting. So I mean, there's different ways to do that. Mm-hmm. But for the most part, that seems to be the bands where there's you know, available frequency right. and also where the physical limitations of how it function are really well in line with the type of data that's being sent, which in this case would be for telecommunications.
0: Right. And that, and that brings me to my point, uh, which was that uh, in the U.S., as it is in, in almost every country, um, there are still things like terrestrial television and terrestrial radio that also have some really good real estate on mm-hmm. on the spectrum band, and I think that's one thing that I want to sort of look to to watch in the future. Of um, uh, strictly speaking, in, in most countries, spectrum is uh, is a resource that can be bought or sold, mm-hmm. right? That is, of course, o- only under the the sort of uh, watching eye or auspices of of the regulator of, of that country, but that. I'm really curious to see if we ever get to the point where we give up on terrestrial radio and television and, and would that be sort of like useful for the satellite industry? It seems like it, it certainly might be, right? I definitely
2: think there'll probably yeah. be a pressure because I mean, what mm-hmm. happens is there are auctions, so right. you, you auction off spectrum and you can only auction so much. Like there's mm-hmm. a limited quantity just to how just the universe, just by the laws of physics, you have to cram it in. And I mean, just like in any kind of marketplace, stuff that at least is perceived as being a bit antiquated or perhaps underutilized ends up at some point getting pressure to change or mm-hmm. be, you know, kind of brought right. over to the other side, so to speak. So,
0: yeah, yeah. And it's, you know, the, yeah. the argument, in, in I know, at least in the U.S., I'm sure in many countries has been that, well, you know, sort of we need public communication and television mm-hmm. offers an important way for uh, people who can't afford any other kind of service to get over the air information. Seems like there there could be solutions to that, right? To to offer some kind of wireline service to to means tested kind of uh, you know constituency or something like that. But I think that's something to watch for certainly over the, the next few years to see if there's pressure from having all these birds in the air and that um, that we're still using the the sort of choice spectrum for some pretty antiquated technologies that don't have very much penetration in yeah. the you know, so. And
2: I think the economics kind of lean towards something like that happening too. Yeah. There's quite a lot of money going into satellites. Right. And as far as I know, not quite as much going into you know, our, our local rock and rap and talk no, and country stations. No, exactly. I love, I love them, but I know I'm <laughs> yeah. in a minority. Yeah. <laughs> I'm, I'm yeah. all
0: Spotify. Although there, there's part of me uh, that that uh, always misses the like you're listening to 103.5. You know, it's like, <laughs> it, it adds a human element. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> definitely. All right. So as soon as we, we you you touch on something else that I, that I want to circle back on too, um, which is uh, around the. Um, we, we were talking about the broad economics, but what about the, the sort of very specific pricing situation? So in, in the, the telecom world we're used to kind of, um, you get a specified amount, amount of bandwidth, I get giggy thousand megs, uh, you know, for X number of dollars per month as a monthly recurring charge and and that sort of thing. Uh, what is the satellite world uh, doing in that sense? Does it look very much like how, um, you know, whether it's an enterprise or a wholesale telecom transaction, how you expect to uh, do transactions uh, in that world? Does that apply to satellite services?
2: Is is there a difference there? Yeah. I mean, I think that it's still a conversation that's very active Mm because a lot of companies are sometimes literally just establishing their connections. They don't have satellites in the air sometimes. So there's definitely a lot of interest. Well, that's where they can tell geography. uh, (laughs) Exactly. Exactly. (laughs) If you're one of those companies looking to answer those questions, you've found the right people. But I I think that there's a lot of... I mean, you you still try to replicate what has functioned as much as you can to the degree to which it applies to your satellite company, Mm -hmm. which... for the kind of retail side, which I think gets the most attention in this space for now because it's public information, your Starlinks, but also OneWeb's, all these other companies that especially Starlink and then like your Hughes and all those companies Mm -hmm. that are selling to your end user retail. We see something. I think that Starlink started off saying that they're going to have very good uh quality of service for a very low price compared right. to what was already available, which mm-hmm. is something like depending on the area, like ninety-nine dollars a month, right, plus the installation fee. So in that sense, it's very comparable to kind of the wholesale telecommunication side on cables, which mm-hmm. is you have your upfront cost for your infrastructure. Right. In this case, it's a unit that you put on your roof or whatever right. Right, that will be able to get signals. And then you have your recurring fee that's on a monthly basis.
0: But that upfront cost, just to, to drive the point home for everybody listening, is is so much cheaper in some situations to get a box in the mail, install it, plug it in, right? It's, it's mostly plug and play from what I see. than it is to... Uh, you know dig a trench that's you know 500 kilometers long right and put repeaters along that trench and and have it meet a central office somewhere in in a, a fair you know especially for older technologies like dsl there's a there's a pretty short limit to how far it can go before the the signal needs to be reboosted and that sort of thing so there's potential for a lot of arbitrage there is my point for for rural and and harder to reach places right
2: oh definitely i would say there's a caveat which is like the comparison of you know a single cable to a single Box that a receiver at a person's mm-hmm. house mm-hmm. is a little bit imperfect. Of course, because of course, it's multiple receivers at multiple right. houses, so the mm-hmm. logistics of getting that to happen yeah. is good. Because if you just want to move somewhere and all of a sudden start up shop, right. you have that kind of freedom to do so compared to if you need to establish fiber connectivity, right. But. You, you aggregate that cost and for a community, you know, say you have a thousand households and each one wants a box.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: Currently that would be like, you know, half a million dollars because right. <laughs> it's right. looking like roughly 500. So mm-hmm. it, the prices do add up still. So mm-hmm. would, it's something that is an issue, especially when we're talking about places that are often in very financially vulnerable positions Of course, yeah. Uh, to get the connectivity of those places is going to be you know, expensive and complicated logistically for whatever reason. Uh, so those barriers still exist. I think one important difference with Starlink Mm -hmm. and probably a few other constellations as well, which is the quality of service does seem to be very good. Mm -hmm. So dollar for dollar, so to speak, or euro for euro, (laughs) you're getting a pretty good product. Mm -hmm. The degree to which that persists is really unclear because the kind of catch 22 of satellite connectivity is that the more people you have using it, actually the quality deteriorates slightly Mm -hmm. and sometimes not slightly, just kind of. It goes down quite a bit, right? So, which is why a satellite is much better. It's a place that's sparsely populated, right? Than if you're going to, you know, downtown Manhattan, trying mm-hmm. to connect with there, just because there's too many users, it gets clogged up, right. and it's just not efficient use of resources. Yeah, back,
0: back to that spectrum problem for mm-hmm. one thing, but then I assume also just that that the number of uh, birds in the air makes a difference there too, right? That if you have too many people pinging the same gateway, it's going to have, you know, connectivity problems. Exactly. Right? So, it's a numbers game. Yeah. 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 That makes a lot of sense. And one more thing that I'll, I'll bring up in the slide is that, it, that with the potential for satellite is that, of course, uh, it strikes me that presently, at least, more or less the way that it works, because it's, again, going back to that geographic model, there are some, like you pointed out rightly, issues about getting the receivers on the ground. They're still going to be difficulty getting into some countries, there's going to be technology import taxes in some countries, right? So like Argentina comes to mind, you can correct me since you're a LATAM guy, but they have like 100% tax on any non-Argentine electronics or something like that, right? So right. you're to, you still have issues like that, but it seems like it likely pales in comparison in some cases To the, you know, sort of uh, monopolies, duopolies, triopolies of of wireline providers that we have in certain countries around the world that, uh, you know, for for anyone familiar, it's, it's not surprising to hear that service like, say, IP Transit can be 10, 20, 30x the price in one country as it is literally next door, just based on the competitive landscape of the wireline market doesn't seem like that will be as much of an issue in satellite. Is that is that a, a fair assessment?
2: I think so. And I hope so. I mean, that's mm-hmm. what we'll kind of see, which right. is like the ambition is, I mean, in my mind to try to see prices get down for a lot of customers, particularly mm-hmm. when we're talking about this group of you know, people and users who have not been connected to the world, sometimes quite literally, just because it's so ridiculously expensive to do so. And so what we see right. is a lot of times the case is you know, a difference with satellites is going from zero to one options, or even one to two, but mm-hmm. something that's like a single digit number of options, which usually are extraordinarily more expensive for significantly worse product compared to you know, somewhere like this office in Washington, DC, which right. is, we're probably going to be able to get a decent price and have pretty good service. So I think that's an important aspect.
0: Yeah, Absolutely. All right. So the last thing I want to hit is infrastructure stability. And so what what I mean by that is that, of course, we know, in we've talked about this a little bit, but, you know, in the fiber world, there's a shelf life for fiber. It depends on how old it is and stuff, uh, you know, when it was manufactured, but something like 20, 25 years. I take it that um, it's a shorter shelf life for all these satellites Uh, What exactly is that, and what do you think the implications of that are?
2: Yeah, I mean, we can only speak for what we know at the moment. So Mm -hmm. this could definitely change, especially when we're talking about a matter of 10, 20, 30 years. Right, right. There's a 15 years from now it's possible that these numbers will be different. Right. right? Like what we see when we're talking about the geo orbit far away from Earth, those we're talking about sometimes, you know, up to a century kind of thing. Right. We're talking about very old satellites that don't use that much data mm-hmm. and they're able to kind of just be these kind of big things that are Plugged slowly in. chugging Uncomplicated. Long. Yeah. But when it comes to Leo, at least from what I hear lately, five to seven years is like the expected life gotcha. ex- uh, span for one of those machines. Mm-hmm. Of course that can change. And there's a lot of incentive to try to make it so they can last longer right. for a number of reasons, especially because, you know, you have to consider when it's done, Gravity. What, what happens to it. <laughs> right. So is it going to burn yeah. up? And that's like brings in some of these regulatory questions as mm-hmm. well as, Space debris. How do we manage that? Right. But while it's active, about five to seven years is, I think, the typical typical cycle that we can expect, mm-hmm. and that you know, it becomes a part of that whole system of, well, how often do you have to do rocket launches? How much is that going to cost? Right. Factor the number of satellites by the number of constellations, et cetera, et cetera, and that becomes very expensive very quickly. So. I think yeah. that's a problem that needs to be resolved at well, some point. I, Yeah, I
0: just saw uh, a couple weeks ago, again, uh, maybe a few days ago even, uh, all this all runs together, <laughs> that the FCC just promulgated a new rule about LEO uh, orbit time, right? Um, so I, did, did you see that story you, you know what I'm talking about? Um, yeah,
2: I did. I mean, it's an interesting question because we mm-hmm. do often, like I said, think about satellites when they're active, but it's at some point not going to be functional anymore. Right. And it's you know, a piece of matter, which can potentially run into other satellites. Right. Or worse, or you know, crash block or ter- <laughs> astronomers'
0: view of, of the heavens. Exactly. Or block other satellites' functionality. Yeah. So, yeah.
2: I mean, there's a lot of, I think, tension with NASA and the research community specifically mm-hmm. for that, which is the kind of the conflict between your research aspect of things and then your proprietary aspects, which right. is you'll see some companies will be very tight-lipped with the coordinates of their satellites. Mm-hmm which is difficult if you're trying to do deep space observations because you need to be able to know what's going to be where and is that a new star or is that just, you know, a satellite (laughs) that was changing orbit or changing location. Mm -hmm. So uh, having those communications is important, but it seems to be a work in progress to figure out how that can be done, both between researchers and companies, but also between different companies. Sometimes you see that there's the potential for different satellites that are owned by different companies to be in each other's, you know, purview, which they could crash. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think that did happen a few months ago where oh, really? uh, I think it was Starlink and I forget the other company, they mm-hmm. had a near crash. Mm-hmm. So they, they communicated in that moment. But that's the question is, should that communication be happening in moments other than emergencies? Right, right. It's a work let's, in progress. Yeah, we yeah. need it. You
0: know, I found it interesting just um, that it was the FCC promulgating this rule. I don't know, it could have been NASA or the Space Force or whatever. Right? So it's, it, we, we're seeing uh, satellite as a as a primarily communications issue uh, ra- rather than a sort of space issue in that sense, right? So, and I, I mean, I don't know yeah. the
2: details of like the bureaucratic decisions of sure. determining who'd made that decision, mm-hmm. but it seems pretty reasonable to think that just because the degree to which these decisions have been lumping all these things together. Like the FCC is pretty regularly active in going through these applications for new constellations being launched. Right. So they have the personnel that's doing this work, it's on their minds. Mm-hmm. So it's probably, this is just me kind of guessing. Yeah, <laughs> but, but yeah, it's something that they're already thinking about. So it seems pretty logical for them to be involved with that as well. Yeah. But I think it also speaks to like what you're saying that. A lot of the dynamics of what we're seeing in satellites is becoming telecommunications oriented. Mm-hmm. So a lot of these kind of different things are kind of mushing together you know, different sectors of what's telecom, uh, who's investing in telecom, mobile, landlines, etc. So with satellites, but also the regulators and the, mm-hmm. the, all the different aspects of who's kind of watchdogging the industry.
0: Yeah, I'm, I'm still a little bit unsure if the Space Force really exists yet or if it's still kind of a fever dream. But yeah, uh, I don't we'll see. have evidence yeah. of we'll it. See. Yeah. We'll see. <laughs> uh, I, I'm primarily familiar with it through the Netflix show. <laughs> so I think that's most people's exposure at this point. Yeah. yeah. Excellent. All right. Well, um, you, there's, I think, so much going on in this space that I think we're going to have to hit this again. Uh, for anybody listening, Peter, how could they keep up with what you're doing, uh, you know, writing, thinking about this?
2: Yeah, I mean, it depends. I mean, there's a lot of work that's being published. We use our blog to publish quite a bit of work on this. this Blog.telegeography.com. Yeah, And also there's a lot of in-person events that we're Mm -hmm. seeing people are going back to. Uh, DC, we're in Washington, DC. There's SATCOM that happens here. Went this year, hopefully going next year as well. Stuff like that. And just also we're seeing a lot more... Satellite presence. It's slow, but it's it's increasing at the kind of other telecom I mean, stuff. Global World Congress. Yeah. And stuff so we're like seeing that, your yeah. ITWs, and mm. I'm going to a couple of conferences soon where I have meetings scheduled with companies that work in the satellite space. So mm. it, it's not a coincidence, I think, that it's kind of penetrating a lot of different areas. Great. So if you're definitely at one of those events, reach out to me. I'd love to speak. And just in general, I mean, our company is you know, kind of exhausting the different options for being kind of in those conversations with people. The kind of space, I hate to use the word space so time. <laughs> yeah, the space space. Yeah. In, in the environment in which it's, it makes sense. Yeah. We, we, we
0: both did, like I said before, geography graduate school, and that's so where you use the word space just ends up being like, has like 15 different, like it's yes. like, you know, Inuits and in snow, right? You know, like, I can really beat a yeah, dead horse yeah. with a stick and you can beat words with an even yeah, deader exactly, stick. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Excellent. All right. Well, thank you so much for joining me, Peter. This was uh, this was really interesting. And, and like I said, I think um, we should check back in and, and see how this is developing.
2: Yeah, and I'm glad to be here and look forward to the next time when everything will be completely different again. <laughs> yes, you know, that's,
0: that's what uh, keeps it fun for sure. Exactly. So, all right, cheers. Thanks for listening. Telegeography Explains the Internet comes from the experts here at Telegeography. It's edited and produced by Jane Miller and it's hosted by me, Greg Bryan. And I also wrote that theme song you're listening to right now. To learn more about our data, jump over to telegeography.com and we'll see you on the internet.